Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Let's start this morning looking at Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look in uh, starting with verse 15. This is Paul's admonition. And this is what, this is just a general direction of, for all of our lives. I mean, if, if, if you wanted to have one skill set, that's it. You can have one skill no, and no other skills. For me, hands down, I want to be able to know the will of God for my life. Doesn't matter what else I know, if I don't know that, I mean, that's like getting out in the middle of the ocean and trying to um, sail a boat or pilot a boat and you don't have a, a compass. You don't know what direction you're going. You know, um, uh, Dean's a, a pilot and, you know, the hardest thing for, for pilots, the, one of the hardest tasks to master is, is to learn how to fly by instruments. Because all of your senses will say, you're going down and to the right. And when actually your wings are, wings are straight and level, you have to look at your instruments. Well, that's kind of how life is. Life will tell you this is where you're headed. But then when you look at the Word, you find out what God's will for your life is. That's your instrument. And that's, God says, no, this is where you're headed. I don't care what your circumstances say. I don't care what the devil says. I don't care what anybody says. Look to my will. Then, and Paul says this in, in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. He said, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That little statement right there tells me that it is possible because if it's not possible for me to know the will of God, then Paul is unfair. And since this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is unfair, which means God is unfair, which means God is unjust, which means God is the devil and the entire universe is flipped up on its ear. Because if it's impossible for me to know the will of God, then why would Paul say, but know the will or what the will of God is? Now, I may not know what the will of God is, and I probably don't know what the will of God is for you or for um, any one person. But for myself, Paul says, don't be unwise. The Roberts translation, don't be a fool. Don't be a dummy. Don't be a knucklehead. Know what the will of God is. So how do I know that? How do I walk? How do I get to know that? And then how do I walk that out? Let's go over to John chapter eight, because it, it all you know it's always best if you've ever watched the uh, and if you're my age you've you've had to have seen it hundreds of times because it was mandatory growing up in my age uh, the the old movie The Wizard of Oz. You know, follow the yellow brick road. Well, where do I start? Well, it's usually best to start at the beginning. So, John 8 gives us the beginning of this journey. John 8, starting in verse 30. 
This is Jesus speaking. It says, As he spoke these words, many believed in him. They exercised faith. Many of the Jews that were listening to Jesus exercised faith in him during this time period. It says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him. So this is instruction to believers. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Very common scripture. But I did a little digging this week, and I, it just, I love it when you just dig a little below the surface. And for me, it's like, oh, wow, I never really saw it that way. Uh, when, when he says here, if you abide, that's, to be honest with you, abide's a little bit old English for me. Basically, that word there just means if you just stay in my word. Translation, stay in the Bible. Make it your constant companion. The, the, the Brother Hagin used to say this, and I heard it so many times that it's just become ingrained in me. When you, when you are faced with any situation, our first question has to be, what does the Word say? That has to be our first. And if we, keep, if we stay in the Word and continually study the Word, then you will be my disciples. Basically, to be a disciple means to be a learner. I've heard, I think it was Andrew Walmack said this many times. He said, I haven't arrived, but I'm at least on the train. Well, you, I don't care who you are. I don't care how spiritually mature you are. I don't care how far you've progressed in your spiritual walk. You still haven't arrived. But the question we have to ask ourselves, am I progressing? And I'll be honest with you, I, I heard a psychiatrist or psychologist say this one time in a retreat. He said, most people, when they look at life, they want their life trajectory to be straight and slightly up, if not straight up. In actuality, life is usually a road and we bounce between the ditches. Now, if you, if you remember when you first learned to drive, now I had, I had uh, an advantage in that. I was a farm boy. So when you, you know, I learned to drive on the back of a tractor and it was usually in second gear at about half throttle, which meant you were going about four miles an hour. So at four miles an hour, you, you've got a lot of time to make corrections, but you learned to do that. And eventually you graduated to the old farm truck because dad wasn't about to give you a good vehicle. You got the old farm truck and you learned. And, and the secret to learning was that you had to learn not to overcorrect. And if you ever watch someone learned to drive, that's the first tendency. You want to jerk the wheel, and you do tend to want to go from ditch to ditch to ditch, when in actuality, when you finally learn, you, you never go completely straight, but you make small corrections, and you generally stay in the right direction. That's what this, this spiritual walk is. We have to learn. We may, we may get off the path a little, but the more mature you become, it doesn't take as much. You, ha you get a little far off the path, and suddenly you start feeling that little scratching down on the inside of you. And you realize, yeah, this is not where I want to be. And you make a little course correction. And then you make another little course correction. And you keep making small corrections. Now, when you first start, you're going to zigzag. You're going to be, you know, you may be all over the place. Don't worry about it. Are you at least making progress down the road? Be a learner. 
How do I learn? I stay in the word. But it's interesting in verse 32. He said, and you shall know the truth. That the, the word there is, and again, this is, I'm horrible at these pronunciations. I don't even know why I go back to the Greek. I ought to just tell you what it says, but it is enlightening. The, the word there is aletheia. And it's, it's a compound Greek word make up, made up of the negative alpha, the letter A, which means whatever this other word says, it's the opposite. And the, other, the second word is lethano, which means to hide something. So when he says, you will know the truth, and the truth, same word, shall make you free, what he's talking about is there's something that was hidden that's now being revealed. And that is the key to this truth. It's not, it's not overall truth about everything in the world. It's God revealing bit by bit by bit little things that bring light to your world and to your situation. God's not going to give you light on every situation. We, there is a Jesus. He's not sitting in the room here. He is here. But none of us are Him. Jesus walked in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He had light on everything. He was the second person of the Godhead. He was omniscient. He was all-knowing. But He, he didn't always exercise that. Because He said, I only say and I only do what the Father tells me to do and what the Father tells me to say. That's why he could walk with no sin. He just followed the Lord. He figured out what the will of God was for him. Now his was very unique, but we need to find out and stay in the Word and learn and learn until we start getting a revelation about things. And that revelation will make us free. Now, a lot of people will take that and say, well, I'm free. I can do anything I want. No, that's not what this means. Again, the Greek word here, horrible pronunciation, is eleutheo, which literally means you are no longer a slave, but you have now become a citizen. You're free not in the sense that your behavior has no bounds, you are free in the sense that I was a slave and I served at the behest of my master and now I have become a citizen. And I can't be ordered around because a citizen has rights. You look at the Apostle Paul. When, when, when according to church history, and, and I believe it, when Peter, when the Roman uh, emperor decided, this is it, Peter, you're gone. They said, crucify him. Being a Jew, he had no choice. He was going to be crucified. Now he decided, according to church history, that I don't want to be crucified like Jesus was, so turn me upside down and crucify me upside down. Which, I'm not so sure that was, a, I could have had done that. But Paul was a citizen. When it came time and, and the, the Roman emperor decided, time for Paul to die. And I'm sure the Roman emperor said, crucify him, he's a Christian. And Paul said, no, sir, you may be the emperor, but I'm a citizen of Rome, and I will not be crucified. And the emperor said, you're right. How you want to die? And Paul said, cut my head off. So they beheaded him. 
Citizenry gave him a right in the Roman Empire. It also gives us rights to be citizens because we're not citizens of Rome. We're not citizens of the United States of America or Indiana or Indianapolis. We are citizens of heaven. Now, I am a citizen of the United States. I've got my passport. But I also have a higher citizenship. I don't answer ultimately to the President of the United States or the authorities under him. I answer to him as long as he doesn't violate God's will. When the will of the state violates the will of God, I have a higher calling to follow God and not to follow the state. Amen? Let's go to uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. I love the, the and I, this was either Paul that wrote Hebrews or it was someone highly influenced by Paul because this is Paul's thought. And he makes this point. He said, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. Look, I'm going to say a whole bunch of stuff, but this is what I want you to walk away with right here. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Paul is talking here in Hebrews about the, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And he's saying he is seated at the, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, the throne of the Father. The Father has a throne, and right next to it, right next to his right, or just to his right, is the throne that Jesus sits on. And being on the right means he is the, that is the place of power. We've heard the phrase, well, this is so-and-so's right-hand man. That means this is the guy that gets things done. You know, there are executives can't handle everything in their, their companies or in their organizations. So they have people that have designated authority under them. Well, the right-hand man has the ear of the boss, and if you want to know what to do, go to the right-hand man. The boss may not hear you. He may not see you. He may not talk to you. But his right-hand man probably will. And when he, when he speaks, it's the boss speaking. Jesus sits at the right hand of God because it's Jesus who has the authority right now. The Father has surrendered the, all authority and all of the universe to the Son. And we have to go to the right-hand man to find out what we need. You were in Ephesians. Go back to chapter 1. This is one of Paul's prayers. This is one I encourage you. Find Paul's prayers in the epistles. Pray them over yourself. This is one starting in verse 15. This is a prayer that Paul prayed over the church at Ephesus. It's a general prayer that you can pray and claim for yourself. Paul says this in verse 15, starting there. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Let me take a little side journey here real quick. Friday we're having prayer for our nation. A lot of people prayed hard over the last year with an upcoming election, prayed for God's will, and things have changed. But notice the principle here. Paul says here in verse 15 and 16, I don't, or verse 15, Therefore 
I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Paul really started praying hard for the church at Ephesus once he heard they were believers in Christ and they were walking in love. Most Christians, we pray hard for people to get saved and then once they get saved, we give them a list of rules and say, here, this is how you have to live. And pretty much that list of rules is exactly the things you think are important. And if you don't live this way, then you're going to, I just, you backslid, you're probably going to go to hell. And we quit praying for them. And Paul says, no, when they get saved and when they start trying to walk the walk out, that's when you need to pray for them. We have prayed, and I personally, it's my personal belief, you can agree or disagree, I believe that things change in this election because the church finally stood up, prayed, and took authority. And then followed through with that, that prayer and authority by actually going to the polls and casting ballots. But this is not the time to quit. This, I, I loved it, Michael Ramirez is a political cartoonist. And he had a, 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 a political cartoon during the election. And he had two six-shooters with their chambers open. One was labeled Hillary and one was named Trump. The one for Hillary, all six chambers were, were filled with bullets. The one for Trump, four of the six were filled with bullets. And his title of the caption was, Election Roulette. Now, I'm not criticizing Hillary or Donald. The point of his, of his cartoon was, if Hillary gets, gets elected, first time we pull the trigger, we're all dead. With Trump, there's a good chance we're going to die too, but at least there's some chance we might do well. Well, let's face it. I, well, I rarely ever admit to this, but I'll admit, I voted for Donald Trump. And I've had people tell me, oh, you're a Trump supporter. Never on one day was I ever a Trump supporter. It was strictly the lesser of two evils. And there are days when he just scares the pants off of me. And I, but I, I need that to drive me to my knees to pray for the man and to pray for my nation because it's not just him. There's a whole bunch of people running this place. And they all need God's wisdom. That's what Paul is saying here. This church at Ephesus and us by application, now that you've tried to start walking out God's will, you really need prayers. Verse 17, this is his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened. There's that light coming in. That revelation. We need to pray that over ourselves. Why? That you may know what is the hope of His calling. That's on the church in general, but each of us individually. And what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance that is in us? Where are the saints? We have an inheritance. We are, we are not just floundering around. We are Christians. We have a high priest. We, we have, we're believers, and now he's called us to abide in his word that we might get a revelation, and by that revelation we might become citizens of heaven. And then once we become citizens, it's not just time to sit around on our rear ends. It's time to get up and do the work of the church. And then verse 19, back in Ephesians 1. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? 
according to the working of his mighty power. Verse 20 is the key, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And he's above every name that is named, both in heaven and earth and under the earth. Paul said that in Philippians. When, G, when God raised him, it took every bit of power. If you go back in the Old Testament, I can't remember the exact reference point now, but it talks about God creating the universe. It says the stars are his, the handiwork of his fingers. But it, when it talks, in the Old Testament, when it talks about God raising the Messiah from the dead, it says it took his strong right arm. I don't know about you, but I can do a little work with my fingers. But I can't use near the power that in, in my fingers that I have in my arm. But if you want to pick an appendage that has strength, my arm's not the one that's the strongest. My arm doesn't even compare to the strength I have in my entire body, let alone my legs. In high school, we used to do deadlifts and, you know, a bunch of high school boys, you're going to compete. And it amazed us when we started doing this how much weight we could lift just with our legs. I mean, I was 130 pounds soaking wet. And I could dead press laying on my back with a, a weight above me. I could deadlift with my legs 800 pounds. And I'm looking at this thinking, how do I do this? Because I had a lot of strength. I guarantee you, you give me a dumbbell... I, it, you get past about 50 pounds, I'm not going to be able to curl that thing, let alone 800 pounds. The point is, creating the universe only took the strength of God's fingers. Raising Jesus from the dead took the strength of His right arm. He's got energy and power to spare to handle any problem that the devil ever wants. I mean, let's face it, would the devil ever put any more power behind anything but keeping Jesus in the grave? If he could keep Him in the grave, He's defeated the Father. But He could not do it. And it didn't even tax God to raise Jesus from the dead. And yet we sit around and look at our circumstances and think, oh my Lord, I just don't know what I'm going to do. Well, let's see what the Word says. That's what we need to do. We need to abide in that Word to where we can get that revelation. And But here's the, the, the next best thing. We're in Ephesians 1. We just saw that Jesus raised, or, or the Father raised Christ and, and from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. But in chapter 2 of Ephesians, look at verse 4. We'll start there. And he says, But God who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He didn't just make us alive. He also raised us up and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's part of the revelation that we have got to get. I look at myself and I, I look and think, Here's an old guy, fat, out of shape, can't do half the things he wants to do. It's like, you know, Pastor Chuck said, I feel like a knucklehead half the time. 
And it, you, you look at your life and you think, God, I have screwed up so many times. And yet God looks at me and he says, what are you saying? Why do you talk about that? That's not how I see you. I see you as resurrected. I see you sitting with me in heaven. The authority that I have, I've given you. The fact that, that I'm seated makes me a citizen. It's made me free. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm now a citizen of heaven with all of the rights, all of the authority. I'm reminded of, of um, I think it's in chapter 3 of Acts, where um, Peter and John were walking into the, to the um, temple. And there was a man there that was lame from birth. And he begged alms of them. And Peter, being bold Peter, but now he's not just bold in Peter's boldness, but he's bold in the, in the boldness that the Holy Spirit is giving, giving him. He turns to him and he says, Look, I don't have any money on me right now. That didn't mean that Peter didn't have money. It's like when we're, my wife and I are out and, and she wants to stop somewhere, and I say, Well, I'm broke, hon. No, you're not. We got all kinds of money. I said, Yeah, but it's in the bank, it's not in my pocket. Well, that doesn't work much anymore. Used to work with the kids real well. But even they eventually, yeah, but you got that piece of plastic and it'll work now about anywhere. But Peter looked at him and he said, I don't have any money right now. But what I do have is this, in the name of Jesus. And he grabbed him by the hand and jerked him up and he was healed. And then when the, the, the priests... And, and the, the, the Sadducees came and accused them of, you know, doing something wrong. They said, hey, don't look at us. The people wanted to make him out to be gods. And Peter said, whoa, it's not me that raised him from the, from, up from being crippled. It was the name of Jesus. That name that is above every name. And we have the authority of that name. Amen? You're there in Ephesians, look down at verse 19. He's gone through after telling us that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. He says, now therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Being part of the family means that you have rights and privileges. It used to drive, because my wife is the, uh, the, the, the friendly police, and she's, she knows all of the rules of, of um, politeness. And we would go to my mom and dad's house, and i just walk up and grab the door and walk in. I'm home, Dad. Home, Mom. And she just, she's grabbed me by the belt. You need to knock before you walk in. And I'm like, why? This is where I live. This is my house. No, it's not. You live, we live over here. I said, yeah, but this is mom and dad's place. It's home. I can walk in anytime I want. Now, she was right. I needed to, you know, you walk into anybody's house, you need to knock and let them know, you know, at least give them a minute to get out of their jammies or run to the bedroom or whatever they need to do. But I had a right to just walk in. I didn't own it. My name wasn't on the deed. There were a few times I had to remind my kids when they were growing up that their name wasn't on the deed. You know, this is mom in my house. You're just visiting. Well, I thought I belonged. I said, you do, but only by my grace. 
Thank God God's grace is bigger than my grace. But we are fellow citizens with the saints and we're members of this household. Amen? Now, go over to Philippians chapter 3 because this tells us where a lot of us are but not where we want to be. Philippians chapter 3, let's start in verse uh, 15. Paul says, therefore, let us as many as are mature. I don't know about you, but that is one of the things I, my goal in life is to become mature. Now, I've, I've gotten there chronologically. In fact, when I turned 50, I remember now, and it's kind of funny, I turned 40, my brothers-in-law, they had a big party for me with all the black balloons, and, you know, you're over the hill, you're gone. And I look back now, 25 years later, and think, wow. What I wouldn't do to go be able to go back to 40. I felt pretty good back then compared to now. But at 50, I had people, especially kids at school, come up to me and say, you're half a century old. Do, do, my Lord, are you, you know, are you in mourning? You're an old guy now. But inwardly, I had these thoughts. I think I'm at least starting to get mature now. Taking me 50 years to reach some sense of maturity... But I'm, I think I'm getting there. Well, Paul's saying, if you want to be spiritually mature, this is what you need to have. He says, have this mind. Spiritual maturity comes down to a way of thinking. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. This is Paul's rejoinder. This is how you need to think to be, be mature. And if you disagree with me, Go talk to God. He'll tell you I'm right. Verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have seen us for a pattern. That's our ultimate goal. To be able to look and say, live your life with the same way I live my life and you'll be okay. Now that not only takes some boldness, but you better be ready to be examined and have your life examined. Verse 18, gives, Paul gives the flip side. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now you tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about Christians. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. That literally means your belly or your heart. But he tells you, he gives you the interpretation. He says, in whose glory is their shame, and he gives the thing that, that, that sets them apart. Who set their mind on earthly things. Why should we not set our mind on earthly things? For our citizenship is in heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. That's what ought to be on my mind. I have to abide in this word to figure out what's heaven like. And whatever heaven is like, I need to take my position seated with Christ in that heavenly place and bring that to the earth. My task as a Christian is to bring heaven to earth. Tough, tough thing to do. So what does that literally mean to us about how we're going to live? Well, let's go over to Matthew 28. 
Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, you can, you can know all the scriptures and know all of God's promises, and we're going to look at a few of them. But if you don't know that you have the right to apply those, doesn't matter. Well, I know Jesus did this, but He did this in general. I don't know that I can enforce this in my life. Well, let's see what Jesus had to say. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And this is the very last, this is the last words of, of Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And that's the name above every name. In heaven and in earth and under the earth. That includes everything. I have, I have all of this authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, I have all of this authority. Now you go therefore. The therefore means, because I have this authority, you go and you start teaching them in my name. And you teach them everything I commanded you. That's not just in the Word, but that's also an application of the Word for you personally. You know, the best testimony you will ever give when somebody says, well, I've got this situation, is to you to find something similar and say, well, this is what God did for me when I was in something similar. Because most people, non-Christian, actually most Christians, they don't really believe what the Word says. They do, theoretically, but to be able to say, this is God's will and I can apply it to my life and change my life, that's a step too far. It's a bridge too far for most Christians. But when you say, look, God helped me to do this. God's doing this in my life right now. That's personal. You may be, may be able to argue what an exact verse means, in fact, I'll tell you, there are verses that I, I look at, and I'll preach healing from that verse, and I've got other Christian ministers and friends, they'll preach that it's not God's will to heal from the very same Scripture. Why? Because they don't see it. They see it totally opposite me. But when I look at people and I say, look, December 10th, 1915, or 1915, 2015, the devil killed my wife. Stopped her heart. But here I am in January 2016 and she's standing completely healed. No heart damage, no brain damage. We've still got some things to work through, but she's healed. You can argue over the word all day and all night. You can't argue over her EKG. When her, her um, um, cardiologist says, I don't have an explanation for this. Most people die on the spot when what happens to them happened to you. And I'm looking at your EKG and there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfect. And you go to the therapist and you have your memory tested because when your heart stops, there's a good chance you're going to have brain damage. And they give you all the memory tests and they say, I don't understand this. You don't have any memory loss. You don't have any functional problems. When technicians come in and say, I just wanted to come in and see the miracle lady. 
You can't argue with that. That's a fact. That was our life. Now, does that mean we've arrived? No. She's dealing with a lot of physical problems right now. Some of them just hangovers from the, from the heart attack. But not in those two areas. And it's encouraging to me because I know that this, this bronchitis that's, that's a hung, hang, hung, a whatever, a hanging on as a result of the heart attack, if God can heal a heart and a brain, what's bronchitis? Well, brother, it's been a long time. So, we have an enemy, and he likes to fight. John 10.10 says, The enemy comes for only one reason, to steal, to kill, to destroy. And not everything that comes down the pike in your life is from God. Some of it is the devil trying to steal your lunch, trying to kill you. And you better be prepared to fight. And how, you know, well, how long do I have to fight? Till you win. That's, there, that's all, the only thing I know to tell you. You keep fighting until you sta- you're standing on him saying, Ha! You're down for the count one more time. Well, part of that is I have to know that I have authority in my life to, to command God's word. I'm not commanding God. Because God doesn't listen to me. I mean, he doesn't seek my advice on anything. But when God says, this is my will for your life, I take that word and I enforce that on my circumstances and on the devil himself. I've said this before, there's three ways to approach things. There's a way I approach God. That's on my knees. God, you are exalted. You are God and I am not and I worship you and I am totally surrendered. I don't have a word to say. You tell me what I need to hear. And then I approach people, and I approach them humbly on an equal status. I don't care what your education is. I don't care what your sex is. I don't care what your ethnicity is. I don't care anything about you other than the fact that you are a, a, either a believer or an unbeliever, and that only separates you because if you're a believer, I'm going to encourage you in your faith, and if you're a non-believer, then I'm going to preach the gospel to you. And that's, but I'm coming humbly and submitted because only, you, you can only be advanced as, as high as you want to, or as you're willing to be submitted. Jesus said that. He said, when you go into a banquet, don't try to go to the head table. Go to the back and wait for somebody to call you up. He said, you want to be the master of all? Be the servant of all. Amen? But when I come to the devil... I don't come humbly. I don't come bashfully. I come with force. I come with authority and I tell him exactly what I think of him and exactly where his place is and that is under my feet. My authority for that is his word. And I can stand on that and watch him flee. That's all he that's the only choice he has. Flee or get run over. And I personally I don't care which. Amen? With that, with that authority comes a few things, and I'm just going to touch on these real quickly. First of all, Psalm 512. I love this verse. Love this verse. The fifth Psalm, last verse. 
says, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. That's us. If you're a Christian, you are righteous. You are blessed. He said, I will bless the righteous with favor and will surround you as a shield. Favor, what is it? It's something done or granted out of goodwill rather than from justice or for remuneration or for pay. I'm not giving you what you earned. I'm not giving you because you've earned it and and you're justified in having this. I'm just giving this because I like you. Let's take that, that word out. It means I'm your favorite. You walk in heaven's kitchen, it's my picture on God's um, refrigerator. Now when you walk in, he may have your picture up, but when I'm there, it's my picture. You come to my house, you're going to know who the favorite is. My picture isn't anywhere near the refrigerator. It's all grandkids. My, my son and, and daughter and son-in-law and daughter-in-law only make the refrigerator if they're in the picture with the grandkids. Because it's the grandkids that are my favorites. And I do I have a favorite? Yeah. All six of them. And my favorite is the one that's on my lap at any one moment. How can that be? How can God do this? Because it's not just because of us. It's because of Jesus and what He did. When God exalted Him and took Him from the grave and set Him right by His throne, He also pulled us out. You have to look at Jesus' crucifixion and His sacrifice as an elevator. He went as low as it's possible to go through His death burial. Why? Because He went as low as it took to pick up every person that was that low. You can't think of a sin. You can't think of a crime. You can't think of anything that any human's ever done to another human that Jesus didn't pay the price for. And when He got down there, He opened the door and said, Y'all come. And if you didn't come to the feast... It's not his problem. Now that doesn't mean that everybody's getting saved, but everybody has the opportunity to get saved. And then when he came out, he didn't just stop at the earth. He just kept going and he went as high as it's possible to go. But we were in the elevator with him. And we're in the penthouse with him. And we have his name and we have his word. He said uh, um, um, in Psalm 138 verse 2, I have magnified your word above all your name. Remember, the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And he's exalted his word above his name. When I stand on his word, there's nothing bigger than that. His name's not even bigger than that. For one thing... His name is behind it. He's not going to go back on what he said. Now, if I tell you I'm going to do something, usually there's a really good chance I'll get it done. But I'll guarantee you, there are times when I'll tell you I'll do something, and sometimes I forget. Sometimes I bite off more than I can chew, and I thought I could get it done, and I don't get it done. But when Jesus says, this is how it is, and this is what I'm going to do for you, guaranteed it's going to be done. 
You just have to get in agreement with him. And when the devil comes and tries to steal it from you, say, no, who in the world do you think you are? We need to quit being afraid of the devil and we need to quit being afraid of our own sin and our own failings. Jesus is bigger than my failures. Thank God he is because i got a long list. You know, I love to, I forget one of the people, I was listening to some of the testimony on these cabinet positions and one of the guys was testifying before Congress and he was talking about Russia and he said, you know, we've had a lot of attempts at cooperation over the last couple of decades. And he said, a very, very long list. And he said, we've got two, three, four things that we attempted that actually worked. Well, that's my life. I've got sheet after sheet after sheet of things I attempted and tried to do. And I got one or two that actually worked. But thank God, that's not what I'm looking at. God said, Paul said back in Philippians, remember, the people who were enemies of the cross set their mind on earthly things. My failures are earthly things. My sins are earthly things. They're failures of my flesh. God says, I don't care. That's not that he doesn't care how you live, but he says that can't stop you from getting up, going on with me, and going on to victory. Now let me just give you a couple, and I'm going to have to go through these, and I'm just going to give you this assignment for, I don't know, next six months to a year, because if you really do it diligently, it'll take you that long. Galatians 3.13, the very first part of it. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? Because the Bible says, His Word says, anyone that hangs on a tree is accursed. That's why it was very important for, for Jesus to come off the cross before sundown. Because the, the law was, if you hang someone on a tree, the cur- they are cursed. But if you leave them on the tree past sundown, that curse comes off them and goes back into the land. That's part of the reason, if you go back and read when, when Jacob was fighting, I forget the, the army he was fighting, he commanded the, the sun to be still. Part of the reason they did is they nailed some guys to a tree. And they, the battle took them away from them. And he realized, I got people, I got an enemy nailed to a tree back here, and if I don't get them off and I can't get there before sundown, that curse is going to come back on the land where God's called us to live. And he said, God, I can't have this. And God said, okay, I'll stop the sun. Now you go on and fight your battle. When you're done, go back and get those guys off the tree. Well, Jesus hung on the tree. Why? Because he became the curse for everything. But when he came off the tree, he redeemed us. Part of that curse, or not part of it, that curse was laid on him. That was part of what he paid the price for. But when he came out of the grave, he left the curse in the grave. And he went to heaven with no curse. We did too. He's redeemed us. Now, go back to Deuteronomy 28. This is where they list the curse of the law. And I, your assignment is, go through Deuteronomy 28. The first, you know, it's always amazing. The first, uh, what is it, 14 verses are the blessings for keeping the law. No human being, with the exception of Jesus, has ever done it. So read them and think, wow, that would have been nice. I could have earned that if I could have kept the law. 
from verse 15 through verse um, 68 are the curses for breaking the law. That's everything we deserve. That's why we need favor. We don't need what is justified. If I get justice in my life, I will be born, live a short life, be sick, be miserable, be poor, die, go to hell, and spend eternity there. That's what I deserve. But Jesus says you're not going to get this. And I, if you want to go through, start with, well, read the first 14 verses. In Christ, you deserve all of those things because He did keep the law and you're in Him. And He's credited you with that. But then go th- from verse 15 through 63 and reverse the curse on all of those. That's what you are entitled to also. Because you've been redeemed from it. I'm going to start in verse um, 38. Because I've had people, I had a, 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 a parishioner one time said, you know, I've tithed for years. And I don't know that my finances are better ever than they would have been. And my, my comeback, and it was pretty instant, came, well, you don't know how bad it could have been, first of all. So, you know, what may seem like you're not getting ahead, may be that, you know, God's preventing a lot of disaster that you're just not aware of. But verse 38 says... Part of this curse, you shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in, for the locust shall consume it. You can stand for money that you've sown over the years, for effort that you've sown, that the enemy has stolen the increase and say, no, I'm redeemed from that curse. Every penny I've ever sowed, everything I've ever sown into anyone's life is a blessing to them. I want the return. And devil, you can't keep your hands on it because that's not, that's not part of my life. I've been redeemed from that curse. Not getting the payback for everything I've sown is a curse, and I'm redeemed from that curse. Verse uh, 39, You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. That means you can put effort into businesses. I've dabbled in businesses before. You want to know what a successful businessman is? Look at me and think the opposite, because I've failed in every one of them. Never had a business enterprise that ever worked. Lost money, lots of money over the years. That's part of the curse. I can go back and say, no, that's not, gonna, that's not, that's not what... Unfortunately for me, I didn't have enough sense at that time to go to this and say, no. Now, the first key is, God, do you want me involved in this business? Because if you don't, then it's all on me. But if you do, it's going to be a blessing. The enemy will still attack it, but you've got weapons to fight back. Verse 40, You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. I love verse 41. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. You got kids or grandkids that aren't serving the Lord? Then you grab a hold of verse 41 and you say, no, 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 no. Devil, you cannot have them. My kids not serving God is part of the curse of the law and I have been redeemed from that curse and my kids shall serve God. And I break the power of the devil off of them. I break every demon. I break their, even, even the, the things that they don't know is the devil off of them. And I'm believing for the 
for people of God to come and preach the gospel, and they're going to have a revelation of it. Why? Because it's my heritage as a citizen of heaven. I'm not going to heaven without my kids and my grandkids, and if Jesus tarries, my great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids. When I'm gone a hundred years, my lineage is still going to be Christian. Why? Because I'm enforcing this, and I'm putting the word out, and if it takes a hundred, five hundred, a thousand years for my, those words to gain fruit, they're going to gain it long after I'm gone. I love this story, and this is a little off topic, but not much. I love this story. Brother Hagin, God told him, you go to Tulsa, and I'm going to show you where you, I want Rama Bible Training Center, Rama Bible College now. And he said, I'm going to show you the spot. And Brother Hagin was a Texan. For a Texan to move to Oklahoma, oh, you don't know how hard that is. Almost as hard as, as a Buckeye to move to become a Hoosier. Not quite, but almost as bad. And Brother Hagin argued with him. I don't want to go to Oklahoma. I got everything I need right here. And God said, you go to Oklahoma. And finally, he was like, okay, if I want to thrive, I got to do this. Went there, found the land. God said, this is the land, you buy it. And he did. And then years later, somebody came by and said, do you know the story about this, this property? And he said, no, I just know God told me to buy this. He said, well, here's the backstory. Here's the part you didn't know. This land used to be belong to so-and-so. I don't, I don't even know if Brother Hagin knew the, remembered the name. But he said, he got filled with the Spirit in the first, charisma, or the first Pentecostal movement back in the 1917-18. And he was shunned by everybody. And he owned this land, and he would walk this land and pray, scream. People thought he was crazy. He would walk this land with his hands raised, and his prayer was, God, please, I want you to use my land. I want you to start a work right here that will cover the entire earth with your word. There's not a continent, there's not a country anywhere in the world that doesn't have a Rhema church in it today. Someone trained at Rainbow Bible Training Center. Not because Kenneth Hagin was a great man, although I believe he was a great man, but because some man who no one knows his name over a hundred years ago stood on his property and said, God, this is what I want. This is dedicated to you. Bring a work here. He's dead and gone and his words are still having an effect. That's how much authority we have as believers. Once you figure out what God's will is, get His Word on it, and then enforce that in your life. Don't take no for an answer. For one thing, if God's told you this is my will for you, He's in agreement. Don't allow the enemy to defeat you and don't allow him to steal from you. You make the declaration. And when you do it, do it with confidence, knowing this is your will, it's my will, we're in agreement, and it's going to happen. Now, my challenge, go through Deuteronomy 28. Find some things there that the devil has enforced that curse on you. And now that you've got the light, now that the lids come off, and you can say, oh, he stole this from me. I'll be honest with you, there's one, there's a couple that I've got, um, that one, verse 41. He stole two kids from me, actually more than that. 
I've got four, at least four kids in heaven right now. I can't get them back. Or as uh, David said, I'll go to them. They can't come back. But I'm going to have relationships that will replace those four relationships he stole from me. And I'll enforce it. And if I have to, if, if God has to have, if he has to tarry Jesus for a thousand years to bring in enough offspring to replenish that so that I spend eternity with all of these grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids, then whatever God has to do, I'm not going to let that, that curse, even though my children are dead, I'm not allowing that curse to, to be enforced in my life. I refuse to allow the devil to steal from me. Amen? And when he does, got to repay sevenfold. Sevenfold. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.